Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's go on to this week's guest. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is one of the most influential riffers of all time, Mr. Dino Cazares, who is a co-founder and primary mind behind some of the most well-known metal bands ever, such as uh, Fear Factory, the really, really cool Brujeria, Asesino, Divine Heresy. He's known throughout the metal landscape for devastating riffs, but he also deserves some praise for being one of the pioneers of extended range instruments and the use of digital amp processors in the mainstream. I present you, Dino Cazares. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Fuck yeah, thank you for having me on the Riff Hard Podcast. You couldn't have anybody better than me on this podcast because I know how to <laughs> riff true. fucking hard, trust me. <laughs> We've yeah. been building up our skills with this podcast, just waiting to be able to talk to you. Dude, it's all about when the pick hits the string, that's the feeling that I live for on a day-to-day basis. When you started playing, did you just exclusively focus on your right hand was that just what you were drawn towards not necessarily because when i first started playing i was you know i was nine years old playing an acoustic guitar trying to play acdc riffs so it was really more about learning how to tune and then learning the chords right and it wasn't about that of course i went through my you know all those 70s bands because this is like 1976 75 around there and of course you know there's acdc and there's van halen's and all that stuff. And of course, when Van Halen came out, it wasn't easy to try to do a tapping on the fucking, on the acoustic guitar, but I tried it. You know what I mean? But I tried it. It wasn't until about when I was 14, 15 years old, when I got my first electric guitar was when I started to more focus on my picking. Of course, like by then I was into Iron Maiden and I was into all the Motley Crue's and the Def Leppard's, you know, learning all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, 81, 82, you hear Metallica and that's where my picking changed when Metallica came along, when all those early thrash metal bands, all those, uh, you know, the Bay area thrash, the, the, the German metal, you know, that's when my picking started to change. And I was like, Holy shit. You know, and I started getting into this, the faster picking, the down picking, the triplets, you know, things like that, you know, and just adding those different techniques from each band you know james Hetfield had that down picking and then you had you know guys in slayer doing you know you know the really fast 
uh, tremolo picking. You know what I mean? And then, then I started hearing other stuff like I'm like, oh fuck! And I just really started getting into that. And then I was realizing that my wrist, you know, wasn't there yet. So this was a weird technique that I did when I was a kid. The ankle weights that go on your ankles, right? When you're walking and people put ankle weights to try to, you know, build up their stamina, whatever, right? Build up muscles on their legs. So we had a lot of that because we were, when I was a kid, we were very much a sports family. My dad was an ex-professional baseball player in Mexico. My brothers were playing that. So we, you know, we had a lot of type of weird, you know, uh, gym type stuff around, right? So I put the ankle weights around my wrist, not case. <laughs> and I put electrical tape around the, you know, where your finger bends, right? I put electrical tape there on there. And so I was like, ah, you know, going like this with the guitar, picking, picking, picking. And just like you're, you, you feel your forearm burning with those wrist weights, right? You feel it burning like, oh man, like, oh. And so I just wanted to build up my muscles. And so the electrical tape made it harder for me to, squeeze you know the to squeeze the cords right to make cords and so i built up the muscles here and then it was like and, and then you know i would practice for a little bit with the with the ankle weights take it off and you're like and you're like way faster like holy shit this works this works all right i want to understand something so your dad is a professional baseball player so you kind of grow up understanding athletics and what it takes to get stronger at something and you realize that your right hand or you just your guitar hands just aren't quite there yet. So you took these sports uh, methodologies and just applied them to guitar. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like when you see a baseball batter going up to bat, they put this donut at the butt of the bat. Yep. It has some weight on it, right? So you warm up with that, right? So that way you can swing faster when you get up to the plate. So those kind of methodologies was what I was kind of using because I knew that people built up their legs, people built up their swing, you know, and it just, it was just something I just, I don't know. I just thought of out of nowhere. And I was like, well, I need to build up my forearm. How do I do that? And I just saw, Oh shit, the ankle weight. See what happens if I put it on my wrist. Cause people put ankle weights on their wrist to walk. Cause you got to remember like back then that's all that was available. You know what I mean? Nowadays we have like, you know, things you could squeeze and, you know, stuff like that. And it was, there's, you know, certain things you could use to build up your muscles in your wrist. So you just repurpose those ankle weights. So back then we're talking like, you know, eighties, early eighties, you know, they didn't exactly have those donuts for your wrist like they have now. You can actually slide these things. They're like donuts, right? They're like wrist weights. But this was like ankle weights because they didn't have no wrist weights back then. So I put it on there and like, and I just fucking started picking that way and it built up my muscles and it, and it definitely helped a lot and it built up my speed and that's how I did it. The first time you did it, was it like, what the fuck am I doing? This burns. <laughs> well, the first time I did it, the first time I did it, I couldn't really palm mute because the ankle weight would hit the string. Right. So when I first did it, I just kind of had to lift my wrist and go like this, you know, until I built up the muscle. Right. I mean, I guess you never totally feel like you're there as a guitar player, but how long did it take for you to start to feel more confident with the strength in your hands? Not that long, only a few months, but I still did it because I wanted to get faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I just still wanted to build up that muscle. So I did it for at least a couple of years off and on for sure. Nowadays, 
Like as I get older, I have to warm up more. When I was younger, I just pick up the guitar and I, I can just do it right now. I got to warm up and you get older, your muscles get stiffer. You know what I mean? You massage your forearms, you do certain, you know, types of stretching and things like that to stretch. And I warm up more. I warm up a lot. Actually, to be honest with you, I warm up with a bass guitar. That's smart. The strings are bigger. The tension's more stronger. And so I warm up with a bass guitar for at least, you know, anywhere between 15 to 30 minutes. And then boom, I'm warm. I'm ready to go on stage. Let's do it. I guess same idea as using the ankle weights is create a scenario that's more difficult than what you're actually going to need. Yeah, but I haven't had to do the ankle weight thing for many years and like I said, I already built up the muscles of my forearm and I always got a guitar around me. So I always try to keep, you know, up to shape when it comes to picking that fast, because you, you know, if you stop for a couple of weeks, you're like, fuck, I got to build up. I got to build up, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example. Fear factory and divine heresy are much different tempos. You know, divine heresy, we were into the, you know, the 215 to the 260 range as far as BPMs. Right. And Fear Factory were more in the 190 range of BPMs. So it's different tempos. Right. Mm -hmm. So I haven't done Divine Heresy in many years. I would have to build up my arm again to be able to do those 260 speeds. Okay. So if you say have a Divine Heresy tour two months from now, you're picking up a bass and practicing the songs on a bass? 100%. Because a bass, you're. First of all, you're used to playing the guitar, right? So the tension or even the pressure just from pushing down on the strings is going to be harder, right? Because obviously, the, you know, you're using smaller strings on the guitar. So the bigger strings add that pressure and you got to press down harder. And the, the string is so big, you're talking like a 130 size cage string and you're picking on that and it's like, it's, it's going to be harder. You're going to feel it all here. That's really smart. And I would just do that and do that. And I would practice. I would probably practice for at least a good few weeks doing that until I build up the uh, endurance, the strength to do Divine Heresy again. And it's not just here. It's here too. It's this too. It's your left hand yeah, as well. Yeah, it's all the above. Because, you know, Divine Heresy, because you got to remember, I was at a fear factory in 2002. So when I started, when I started doing Divine Heresy in 2004, I was playing with a lot of different drummers. I had a guy named John Sankey, who's from Australia. He was in a band called The Devil You Know. And he was in a band called Devolved. And he, you know, was a really good fucking blast beat type player. And then I ended up working with Nick Barker after that, you know, and he's a great drummer as far as speed and everything. And he has, he has these fucking techniques that are on drums that are amazing. He's insanely good. Yeah. He also showed me the speed in his drumming, what he did. For instance, where you set your toms, where you set your cymbals. I mean, he's a big guy, but he plays really tight. He told me the difference between where he sits and his snare drum to the cymbal is closer. So the distance is way shorter. And so this, you know, and that can build up your speed that way because it's further, it would be, it would add, I don't know, fucking <laughs> probably milliseconds, right? Which matters when you're playing what Nick Barker plays. When you're playing with Nick Barker. So he's like, that, you know, everything's really close. It's right here. It's all like where my hands are at is like, you know, that's how it is. And I always tripped out on how he set up his drum set. Now, going further into 2010, I played with Gene Holguin. That motherfucker had his shit 
way back. I couldn't even reach it. His symbols. He's also like six foot five, isn't he? He's six four, I want to say. He's a tall dude. Yeah. And so his sticks are really big, right? And uh, I was just tripped out on how he did the speed. And I was even telling him about the Nick Barker situation. You know, how come you don't move your symbols closer? Or you go faster. And he's like, you know, he's like, don't worry, Big Daddy. I got my, I got my style. Big Daddy, I got my style. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just, like, don't even try to say nothing to me, bro. I got it. You know what I mean? That's kind of like was his attitude. So, you know, going back to, uh, you know, playing with some of the amazing drummers, you know, it was when I got Tim Young into the band is where the temple started to really pick up, you know, because that's just his nature. I remember you took me to Divine Heresy practice once in like 2009. Wow. I remember watching you sync with Tim's feet. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's fast and tight. Jamming with Tim Young, there was a definitely a learning experience between the both of us because we really had to connect. You know, Tim Young was more of a, at the time, he was just a, a straight up, he came, he was coming out of Hate Eternal, and that shit's fucking fast. Eric Rutan is one of those motherfuckers that could pick like that. Tim just came out of that band, and so he was like, like, whoa, 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 <laughs> we need to calm down a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> Less is more. And so Tim started to, to, to really see how I liked to play, and he really, you know, started to learn. And we started to learn actually off each other. But I was kind of like teaching him, hey, man, you don't need to go, you know, all over the place, like Animal, you know, from the Muppets. I was like, yo, I think you need to do more tasteful stuff. And he did. And that shit just came out amazing, those first two records of Divine Heresy. And, and the temples were so high that, you know, I built up my speed jamming with Tim. So that's how I was able to, you know, just to get into it like that. And just we were, we were writing that way. Do you think it's important to write with a drummer in the room? Not always. Well, a lot of times, you know, there are guitar players that d direct the drummer. You know, James Brown, the guy was not a musician at all. But he could say, hey, play this, do this, do that. And he was, a, he was a, like the conductor, right? He conducted the horn players, the, the bass players, the, the guitar players, the drummer, you know, on a beat. And he would just do it with his mouth. So to me, I always felt, Whatever band I was in, I was the conductor, right? And I would guide people into what I hear in my head, you know? And a lot of times, you know, I've, I've developed a technique of actually, I can just hum it and they're like, oh, okay, I got it. And they can do it, right? Or do this, you know? And so I always felt like I was the conductor when it came to drummers. <laughs> now I just program it whatever I'm hearing much quicker that way. Probably. Yes. And no, probably less times you have to practice it or the drummer has to <laughs> practice it. And I was jamming with Raymond in, in the early days of fear factory. He had a drum machine next to his drum set. So if he heard me humming something, sometimes he would write it on a drum machine because it would help him understand the beat more. And that's so ahead of its time. Yeah. This, we were doing this like on D manufacture days, like way back. Yeah. Because that's, kind of how a lot of band members communicate now is, you know, someone will program something for somebody else, then they'll learn it. You guys doing that in the early nineties is so far ahead of its time. Yeah. I, um, I like to think that, you know, we were probably, um, 
in some ways, trendsetters. I mean, in some ways we got ridiculed because we were doing things like that. Oh, that's not the real, that's not a real drummer. That's a drum machine. Oh, triggers are cheating. <laughs> we heard it all. But then bands started to say, Hey man, you're using that DM four or the DM five, Alisa's drum trigger. Yeah. I remember that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that thing. You know, we were using it back in 1992 and there, there were some death metal bands that kind of learned that from the more sound studios because the producer there was using all that for all the early bands, DSI and stuff like that. I remember we were, I remember we did a festival like in 1993 in Europe and a good friend, Steve from the drummer from DSI was like, look, man, he went up to Raymond and is like, fuck, how do you set up those triggers? Because all I'm getting is misfires and blah, 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 blah. And Raymond was like, look, you need to put pillows in your, need to put a lot of pillows in your kick drum the problem is is that the trigger whenever you hit the kick drum all the air inside the kick drum was vibrating and it was causing the trigger to misfire but if you eliminate some of that air in your kick drum and you could still use you could still apply that today to be honest with you so now they have like these special drum pillows that go up, up against the the drum heads that can stop all that. But we were using like you know two or three. We, we would get pillows from hotel rooms. <laughs> we still grab those pillows, man. Fuck that. Let's, let's steal the pillows and put them in the drum into the into the drum the bait the kick drum to stop all the air from moving because then that would it would the resonance wouldn't be so much to make the trigger misfire. Right. And those are just little techniques that we just learned way, way, way back. And people were asking Raymond to help them, you know, set up that stuff. But to us, the trigger was very, very important as far as sound. Right. You know, and because it really defined the kick drum tone. Right. And you can get more of a clickiness out of it. Right where people can actually hear the kick drum. Because if you look, if you go back in the early days and you listen to the Metallica records, that thing, that, that kick drum sounds like a pillow. Imagine if they had, if they were using triggers back then, <laughs> and, you know, that shit would sound dope, right? One, you know, all that stuff would sound dope. But... It would sound savage. Yeah. But we kind of adopted that from the studio, just learning it from the studio. And other industrial bands, we were seeing, we were seeing KMFDM you know, way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And these guys were making, uh, they were triggering drum sounds off like a, like a, just a pole. They would make their own type of percussive things that they would use. So we saw them and they, one guy, it was like a pole, a pole on top and two poles on the bottom. So he was like, just triggering it off these poles. And I realized that they had the triggers on these poles going through one of those trigger systems. This is insane. <laughs> yeah. And so I was seeing that way back in the eighties and I'm like, fuck, we need to put that on drums. And then, and then we realized that people were doing that already. But what gave you the idea of synchronizing the clicky kick with the riff? That's 1988 Metallica and justice for all record. There was a, thing that they did in one of the songs called One. I think I've heard of it. It's the only time that I really ever heard Metallica do that. It's in the midsection, in the breakdown, where the kick drums and the guitar are syncopated. That is the only time Yeah, it's the only time I ever heard it. I'm like, why the fuck can't this band do more of that? That's so badass. And that's what made that part stand out. <laughs> that's what made me actually like the song. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was the part. There's a song on Master of Puppets. I believe it's called Disposable uh, Heroes. And it's like down. But then, then you have but uh, Lars is going through. He's not like. Can you imagine if that kick drum was syncopated with that riff? That shit would be so fucking badass. That would have been fucking groundbreaking back then. But they didn't do it, and so because of that, I I crave that, and I was like. Fuck that. I'm going to start a band like that. I'm going to do my own band like that. Fuck. I, you know, I, I just heard that. And I'm like, I need to hear more of that. It was became upset. I became obsessed with it. I became addicted to it. And I was like, everything I do, I wanted to be syncopated. Even if it's just like a one, two beat. Even if it's just something as simple as that. And that's pretty much like songs like these That's where all that shit came from. And I was just like, fuck, I love that. And I just, it developed into our own style. Just that one little piece of Metallica inspired a whole 30 year career for, of, of my band, 10 albums and other albums that I worked on, you know? It's interesting hearing that because I remember one of the, guitar players in corn i forget which one said that he wanted his whole band to be the slow parts in a morbid angel song without the solos or the blast beats just that apparently that inspired corn period like for the first many albums is just morbid angel without the fast shit or the solos mm-hmm. so it's just interesting to hear you say like that one metallica part <laughs> should be a band <laughs> pretty much like is that something that you and raymond came to like together or did you have to kind of explain that to him and then he got it magically i definitely had to explain it to him because you know i was already thinking that in 1988 when that record came out i was like fuck why can't they do more of that fuck i need to start a band like that so i was kind of like i already had my wrist beat up and so i was like I need to do that. And I heard a little bit of that in Dark Angel. Actually, Dark Angel had some, Gene had some patterns, but I noticed that the guitar wasn't really following the patterns, but I could hear some of the Gene Hoagland patterns in there that that would be fucking sick. Like I heard that in a drummer, right? But I was like, well, I need to find a drummer to hopefully, you know. In 1988, <laughs> this has never been done before as well. Yeah, I, I was starting, other, I had other bands and I tried to do that. And the, some of the drummers couldn't really do it. So it's kind of weird how Fear Factory started was because around that time, 88, 89, I was already jamming in a band with Burt. We were very Godflesh, tuned down to fucking G and F, you know what I mean? Gong, 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 doing just heavy pounding stuff, right? And so we were called Ulceration. And I was jamming with Burt in that band. I met Raymond in a record store that I was working at. I was saying, I, I met Raymond and I was like, hey, you know, because I was the kind of, I was the guy at the record store where people came in for metal, death metal, grindcore, metal, punk, rock. I was that guy that knew all the bands and was turning people on into other bands. So Raymond came in, he was looking for some particular stuff. I go, oh, you like grind? Stuff like that. He goes, yeah, yeah, I play in this band. I go, oh, you got a band? Cool. You know, it's like, I go, you know, anybody else looking for, you know, looking for a guitar player? Cause I need a band. He goes, yeah, there's a band that across the street from where I live called excruciating terror. You should go try out. So I went to go try out Ross Robinson actually drove me to the tryout because we were friends for a long time. He drove me to the tryout 
And fucking this band was like, total terrorizer, fucking full on napalm, or, you know, early napalm death. And I was like, fuck yeah, this is like, I got into that vibe too. But I noticed that the band wasn't serious. They weren't serious about trying to make it. And I was already, you know, by, by that time I was like, you know, 20 years old. And I was like, fuck, I want to fucking make it. I moved to Los Angeles for a reason. And this band isn't that reason. You know what I mean? So one day our drummer didn't show up for practice. And remember, Raymond lives across the street. Raymond just happened to come over. And I never heard him drum before. One of the guitar players said, hey, man, you know, so-and-so is not going to show up. Why don't you get behind the kit, kit and just jam with us? So Raymond got behind the kit and I fucking hurt his feet. I'm like, that's the guy I need right there. That's the dude. My eyes opened up. I'm like, boom, I started getting this idea. Fuck, if I get Raymond and I'm already jamming with Bert and another band, if I get those two guys together, fuck, we can create something dope, something different. Raymond had the feet. So I was thinking already, 1988, fucking middle part of Metallica. I was already thinking that when I saw him play. And I was like, that's the dude. And so me and Raymond started jamming. I quit the band, by the way. After a month, I quit that band, Excruciating Terror. And I started jamming with Raymond in his fucking bedroom. We were fucking jamming already, writing songs. And I was like, told Raymond, I go, dude, I got the guy. I got the singer. I'm already jamming in another band. He's like, sure, bring him over. And so I introduced Raymond and Bert. And that's pretty much the birth of Fear Factory and the sound and how it all started. And, you know, Raymond just developing his feet with patterns because it does take a technique for your snare and your cymbals. I call it the tops, that your top part of the drum set to do something completely different than the feet. And that takes a certain technique, right? I was going to ask that, actually. How long did that take to develop? Because that was still not really normal, I don't think, until maybe 2012, where you started seeing all these drummers popping up that could do that. I would say a good few months, six months maybe, because, you know, me and Raymond developed this kind of connection and we kind of, we can look at each other and kind of know what the next thing is going to be. And that's, that's a very rare connection. You know, I mean, guys have it, you know, Dimebag and his brother Vinny, you know, Alex and Eddie Van Halen. A lot of guys have that connection, you know what I mean? And they just have that, they don't even have to say it and they know what to do. And me and him kind of had that connection back then. And so it didn't take him very long because he already had the feet. He just had to learn the patterns and that was it. So he was like, hmm, how can I learn a pattern? Hmm, let me get a drum machine. I'll program it. This is what you hear, right, Dino? I'm like, yeah, that's the beat. Oh, okay. Give me a few minutes. He's like, Pfft. he's like, okay. He's thinking about it. Give him a few times and boom, he's got it. 10 minutes or so. Lucky find. That's crazy and in, in so early. Yeah, really lucky find. Yeah. And then I would change the pattern on him. He's like, motherfucker, you just changed the pattern. I'll call oh, fuck. Now he's going to go back and reprogram it. And, you know, it, it progresses. You know what I mean? And that's just how it was. And then once we were able to develop that, then it was just pretty much, you know, we wrote D Manufacture in three months. You know, we, we recorded it, you know, in a couple months. And, you know, that process was a lot faster. The writing process was a lot faster because of those things that we developed, especially Raymond, you know, using the drum machine to write the pattern out. A lot of the things made the process faster, where now you can just do it on your computer, write it on your computer. Oh, here you go. I sent you a track. Check it out. You know what I mean? To the other, you know, musician who might live in Ohio and I live in LA or somebody might live in New York or somebody lives a fucking on the other side of the pond. You know what I mean? Technology has definitely made it much easier 
for people to, you know, create music in that way. So by the time that you met Raymond and you guys started jamming, would you say that your right hand was already like in the ballpark? Yes. My right hand was already in the ballpark because I was doing bands before that. I had a band, like I told you, I had a band with Burton called Ulceration. We were doing like more Godflesh stuff. I had a band called the Douche Lords, which is funny band. We were like a mixture of, we were a crossover between, we were like an SOD crossover band. You know, Anthrax meets fucking, you know, hardcore. And that's kind of like what we sounded like, the Douche Lords. I also had a band called Brujeria, which we were kind of uh, more along the lines of the Mexican death metal which we define the genre, by the way, you know, so I had, I had three bands going on before I even started fear factory, but I always had that in my head. Fuck. I need to start a band like that. Again, going back to the Metallica one thing, that desire and that craving that I had to do that. Some of my my other bands, some of the drummers just couldn't do that until I met Raymond. I'm like, okay, this guy can do it. Now it's just coming up with the patterns, which eventually my band Brujeria, which started in 1989, and we put out our first record in 1992, right after Soul of a New Machine, I ended up bringing Raymond into the band just so I can add some of those syncopated kicks and, and guitar type of rhythm, right? And plus we had that connection, you know, we had that connection, so we were able to write records quickly. Where did the tunings come from? Because that was also ahead of its time. Tunings came from all the early death metal stuff and, and mainly more from Godflesh, really. You know, some of that low tunings that they were using back in the day. But I mean, I know there was like, you know, Trey and Morbid Angel, I think at, at some point was using a seven string guitar. He was. But still, like tuning down to G didn't become mainstream until the 2000 teens. <laughs> Like I said, I was more influenced by the Godflesh tunings, you know, and stuff, the stuff they were torn down. I don't really know a lot of bands. I mean, there was definitely some of the death metal bands that were tuning to B, but, you know, we were going lower with some of the other bands I was in. But when we were doing the early Fear Factory stuff, I was tuned to B. So I was tuning a six string down to a B standard. Got it. Brown, I cut you off. You were about to say something. No idea. Let's keep going. (laughs) oh okay okay cool so all right you know the first thing you said when you came on uh i want to touch on that you said that the moment that the pick hits the string is uh what you live for and i want to talk a little bit about how that affects tone because i feel like it's massive the way you pick and what pick you use the angle all of that there's a lot of things that affect tone number one thing is what's coming from your head and what's coming out of your hand you know what i mean that's the number one thing that affects tone how you palm mute your technique after that what affects tone is different textures of a pick what a pick is made from can affect tone i mean you've heard of musicians using like what are the steel picks for certain sounds and stuff like that and there's certain types of material that people make picks from that can affect tone. And if you really want to know what that tone is, you get the different picks and you drop them on a table, right? And you can hear the tone that the pick makes. I can at least show you, you know, the different materials that's used and how that can affect your tone on the guitar. Now, this one is called the Dunlop Old Tex pick, right? It's a sharp, mm-hmm. all right? We're just going to the material first. This material sounds brighter. So when this material hits your string, 
it's going to be a little, it's going to have a little bit of brightness to it. In some ways, it can have clarity, depending on how you have your tone set. Maybe your tone is a little darker, and this pick can actually add a little bit of clarity to your string because it just has a brighter tone to it. Now, here's another Dunlop sharp pick, right? So sharp. And the 88 Tortex. This one has a slightly darker tone. Depending on what you're going for, you can use either one. Another thing, too, is that these are sharp picks versus a round pick. The tip is sharper. And these are, I don't know if you can see that. That's rounder yep. and sharper, right? Now, the rounder, when you're picking your guitar, will probably have less clarity in a pick. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean tone because tones are already in the different plastics that's used, right? But this one is how the pick glides off your string. So a rounder pick will hit a string and it'll just like kind of smoothly glide off. That can affect how your clarity of your string pick, you know what I mean? So then if you get a, if you get a sharp pick, now this really sticks to the string and it can add more definition to your pick. Now the problem is you have to get used to it because you're used to a pick that's just gliding off the string. It's a much smoother pick, correct? So it's much smoother and it glides off the string, right? This one really catches the string. So it takes a different type of technique when you're doing it, when you're playing it. To me, I like to use sharper because when you're recording, you really hear the pick because it really just grabs on it. But it takes a different technique. It can also help your forearm because it's going to be a little harder to pick. So it takes a technique, and I, I, I developed this sharp pick using this over a few months of jamming with it, right? Because sometimes it gets the it gets the string so well, and it'll just fall on stage. You're like, "Fuck, where did my pick go?" So it took me a little while to develop using that pick. Once I got it, I was like, "Fuck!" And then in the studio, you can hear that it adds definition to the pick. So those are minor things that I love and just, you know, experimenting with. I know other musicians feel the same way and other guitarists get into it, but maybe not as detailed, you know, but I know everybody tries to use whatever pick they feel comfortable with. What I, I like to use picks that are going to make it better, make my tone better, make the clarity better, brighter, you know what I mean? Something that's going to add definition to the pick. So when I'm syncopating with those drums, you really hear it. You know, you really hear that. Did you notice with the sharp pick against the round pick, did you have to adjust how hard you were hitting the strings? Because you said you had to completely change the technique. So I'm wondering if you had to sort of not dig in as hard. Yes. Yeah. But, I, but I'm that way in general. Whatever pick I'm using, I have this weird technique where I dig in hard without throwing the guitar out of tune. Because sometimes if you dig too hard, you can make the strings go sharper. But it takes a certain technique in this hand as much as this hand. So when you're digging in, it depends on how you're holding your hand here, right? So it doesn't go sharp. So it's really all a feeling. And it's just something that you have to listen. Yeah, of course. And you just have to figure it out. And for me, over time, I kind of figured that out. Like, Because you got to realize at the time I was using six strings tuned down right so the minute you hit that string is like and it comes back in the tune right yeah of course so how do you do it how do you develop that technique to where it doesn't go out of tune it depends on how you're holding it here so if i'm hitting if i'm hitting an open chord right i'm using my arm but I, it may look like i'm digging in 
but sometimes you just have to lay off. You know, the pick may look like it's hard, but it's not. I'm not really digging into the string. So in other words, if I'm playing live, I'm going boom, boom. I'm just barely even gliding on the string. So it's more finesse and control. There you go. More finesse. Exactly. You have finesse on the pick to where or you lighten up, you know, but just for show, you look like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. Boom. You know, you're digging into it, but you're really not. <laughs> and that takes a certain technique as well. But yeah, I'm into all that. I'm a geek like that when it comes to shit like that. Where does the gear come into play for you? Because I agree completely. Tone is mostly in the hands. Like if you don't have that part down, nothing else really matters. But once you do have that part down, the gear makes a big difference. Yeah, the, the gear can make a big difference on, you know, and the, and the gear can actually inspire your playing. You know what I mean? If you got an amp that sounds killer and you're feeling that amp, fuck, it's endless amount of riffs that could come out of you and it just completely inspires you to fucking, you know, take it to whatever level you want to take. Way back in actually 1988, let's talk about 1988 again. I had this Marshall JCM 800 and I wanted that fucking first Van Halen record guitar tone. And I took it to a guy that I knew was modifying heads. That was going on a lot way back, you know, the Eddie Van Halen days, modifying his head. And that inspired so many other guitar players to do the same thing. And it inspired amp developers to create these mods. So I wanted that 19 fucking 70, whatever year that first Van Halen record came out, 76, 77, I don't know. But I went to this guy and I said, look, I want this to sound like the first Van Halen record. And boom, he nailed it. And I was like, fuck, that's my guitar tone. Because he added this overdrive. He had two gain stages, right? Depending on how much I wanted to go. So going to my first record, Solvania Machine, that gain stage, I cranked that shit up because I wanted that shit to sound like fucking death metal. Scoop the mids, you know what I mean? And fucking add more distortion. That definitely inspired me on that record. But when it came to D-Manufacture, I wanted more clarity. I wanted more, what's the word I'm looking for? Just not overly distorted, right? So I backed off the game. You wanted the definition. The definition, there you go. Less gain and a little bit more mids. And boom, that was my tone. Now, there was an issue making the record in D, during D-Manufacture, during the recording process. The issue was that Colin Richardson, this is 1994. I was about to ask you about him. Yeah, Colin Richardson was a producer. He produced the first record in 1992. You got to remember, he's known for doing all those early grind and death bands, you know, Napalm Death, Carcass, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, he did, he did this, he had a particular sound, right? In that time. So when 1994 came along, 1995, we were making that record. He had just done Carcass Heartwork. Great guitar tone, great riffs, killer record. He also had just done Machine Head Burn My Eyes as well in 1994. Good year. Yes, very good year. His amp of choice was the 5150 with a tube screamer. Bands were doing it back then, which which became a whole sound in the Swedish scene. and <laughs> To this day. Yeah, to this day, yeah. Became a whole thing. I had to fight for my head because he wasn't used to that head. He was used to, he just came off two big records with that 5150. So he wanted me to use that. I was telling him, that's not my tone. So we wasted 10 days of arguing because he wanted me to use that 5150. Now, when we plugged in the 5150 and we started getting tones with the 5150, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. 
And I like, started playing. I started playing the carcass riffs. I started playing the machine head riffs. And I'm like, you know what? This is not me. This is not my sound. This isn't, I'm not feeling this tone. This isn't me. I need to go back to my head because that's my sound. My hands reacted well with that head. And I knew that what I could create with that. So 10 days of arguing, finally, I fucking won. And I, I you know, I had to put my foot down. I said, <laughs> I, I literally put a sign on the wall that said, my way or the highway, motherfucker. You know, you're going to have to deal with this tone. And I had to fight for my tone. I literally had to fight for my fucking tone. And so once we got it, you listen to that tone. It's a classic. It's a legendary tone. People love it. It's interesting because sometimes when a producer fights for something, the producer's right. But it's really important for an artist to know when to not back down. Correct. And I did not back down on that record. We ended up firing him and we ended up going with somebody else to mix a record. Greg Greeley, who mixed our EP, Fears of My Killer, and Reese Fulber uh, came into the picture and fucking took, we took over that record. Me, me and those two guys took over that record and fuck, it just came out amazing. I was crying when I finally fucking heard the first song and just the development of the sounds, you know, and the tones, EQ in my guitar tone, tone shaping it to even fucking more fucking ripping. And, uh, you know, what we did to the drums and just all the keyboards that were playing a more predominant role in the mix. The first song, I was zero signal. I was crying. I was like, fuck, finally, after all this shit, arguing, you know, with uh, on my tone, fucking firing the producer, convincing the label, Roadrunner <laughs> Records, Monty Connor, to give us more money to go mix the album. It was a struggle, man. Fuck, it paid off in the end. It's a good thing that you fought for that tone because I really think that the demanufacturer tone in lots of ways paved a path for lots of what we think of as modern heavy guitar tone is very different than the soul tone. Yeah. Well, it's the same amp, believe it or not. It's just on the souls of the machine tone. We really, I mean, I mean the, the, the mid was probably like one, you know what I mean? And the gain was just cranked and we just wanted that fucking death metal tone. You know, it's like, it's almost like we used one of those fucking metal zone pedals or the heavy metal pedal. You know what I mean? From boss, you know, it's almost like we just cranked that or something, you know, and that's kind of like what we wanted. But like, again, more definition, more clarity on my tone during demanufacture. We, you know, my tastes have changed right within 92 to 94, 95. My tastes have changed. I've learned a lot or just being on the road and being experienced and watching other people, how they set up their shit, you know, being at festivals or looking at people's gear and, you know, just all those things developed. And I was like, well, you know, again, on the first record, so machine, we put 17 songs. That's way too many songs on a record, but we were just so excited to make a record. We just said, let's throw everything on there. You know what I mean? But I learned that, you know, you concentrate on the 10, 11 best songs and you focus on those. And that's exactly what me and Raymond did when we wrote those records. We're like, we're going to focus on these songs and really fucking get into the structure and not just, the, not, you know, not just the tones and all that stuff or, or the riffs, just the structure of the songs, just getting into it. And that's why you see a lot of the fat that's cut out, you know, compared to solving a machine and more, our songwriting experience shows on that record. There's some bands that make it on their first album, you know, Corn, Machine Head, Burn My Eyes, very classic record. They found that on the first record. Or us, we didn't really find it till we didn't find our our sound 
till the manufacturer. Using that same head, it's different every album. So I'm using a six string on Sullivan Machine distortion cranked six string on D manufacturer distortion pulled out a little bit more mids right and then obsolete seven string tuned down to a darker tone in 1995 late 1995 ibanez approached me about playing the seven string they gave me a seven string guitar the uv 777 that's the one with the green green DiMaggio pickups and the green dots and black right i still have it you still got it damn sick <laughs> I got this guitar, plugged it in. The minute you hit it, you sound like corn. I was like, fuck this. I, I can't get into this. There's certain distinctive tones and sounds that other bands have created that sometimes if you get some of the same instruments, might sound like that. They claimed that spot on the beach already, basically. Yeah, I was like, nah, not into this. But I missed the active pickup response. It was much quicker than some of those Back in the early days, passive pickups. Nowadays, passive pickups have progressed. Passive pickups can sound like active pickups. You know, they got more aggression. They developed, you know, they developed them a lot better. You know what I mean? So, but back then, you know, we're talking like 1995, there was only uh, one company, I think at that time, was making seven street pickups, and that was DiMaggio. So I was like, ah, I didn't like these pickups. I'm like, fuck that. This is not my tone. I was telling Ibanez, you know, doesn't somebody else make some pickups for this thing? Because I'm not interested. No, that's it. That's the only one we know of. So I reached out to EMG. I'm a fan of the EMG 81 active pickups. They've been around for a long time. And I had those in my six-string guitars. So I was like, why can't EMG make a fucking seven-string version of that? So I contacted them. And I talked to them. They're like, nah, no, we can't make that. We can't make it. I'm like, what do you mean? Can't make it. So anyways... Couple of months go by. I'm on tour using a seven string guitar. We're on tour with Iron Maiden. And I got this fucking DiMaggio pickups. I'm cranking the distortion. I'm just trying to get it to where I like it. You know what I mean? I'm still out there playing it. And I was like, fuck, you know, I, I got to call MG again. So after the tour, like a month or so later, I called him again. I said, look, dude, man, you got to figure something out. Please, please. I want that EMG. I want that 81.7. Make an 81 seven string. Do it, please. Like, no. Sorry, bro. We can't do it. So then finally, a few months go by. They called me. They go, Dino, I think we got it. I go, okay. He goes, but you're going to have to route out your guitar. And I'm like, fuck it. No problem. What is it? What'd you get? What'd you develop? He goes, well, we were able to get, get the 81 electronics and put them into a base case. What those active pickups were was what they used in the active pickups in a base, right? They're a little bit longer. And they're, what do they call them, rectangular? Mm -hmm. The soap bar, the soap bar. They go, we got it, but we had to put it in this case because this is all we have and blah, blah, blah. And I go, I don't give a fuck, send it over. So we sent it over. I had Ibanez routed out, put that thing in there, right? Get rid of get rid of that fucking, well, I already got rid of the neck pickup. So there was a hole there. And what I did is I just covered up the hole. Actually, what I did, I don't know if you know, it's like wall filler. If you got a hole in your wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sprayed it. <laughs> and it gets hard, right? Yeah. The expanding foam. Yeah, the expanding foam. So what I did is I took that pickup out and I sprayed that shit in there. It was coming <laughs> out of the hole. And I just got like a ruler or a piece of cardboard and I scraped it to where it'll be smooth. Let it harden. And boom, I covered up that neck hole. 
right? And then I put a pick guard over. I got a I got a pick guard. Uh, Ibanez, you know, they have pick guards with no holes, no pickup holes drilled out. So I I said here, use the pick guard and cut out that EMG base case, so that soap bar on the pick guard. And they did. So I was able to cover up the hole. You couldn't see the fucking wall filler. I covered it with a matte black pick guard with that EMG cutout. And so I was playing it. I'm like, this is it. This is fucking it. Fuck yeah. And it, it was called the it was called the EMG 707s. And they were only making them for me at the time. And I always felt like if it wasn't for me pushing EMG to do that, that you wouldn't, I don't know what would be developed. What do you think got them to see the light on it? Me fucking pushing them got them to try to figure it out. And they did. But they said, this is what we're going to have to put the electronics in. It's a case that they use for bass pickups. That's a fucking case for a bass pickup. So was this like late 90s? No, 1996. 1996, damn. Remember, it's me not wanting to use the DiMaggio passive pickups. There was no really other company developing any seven-string pickups at that time, right? And it sounded like horn. So I'm like, I need to get rid of this fucking shit and fucking <laughs> do something that I like. So it was my passion and me pushing EMG to figure it out. And they did. And that's what became the standard of a soap bar pickup. Crazy. That is killer. Yeah. That's a story that a lot, a lot of people know, right? So once they developed it, I was like, fuck yeah. But it was called the 707 back then. I was doing advertisements and all the magazines by the time Obsolete came out, you know, uh, recording in 1987, 1998, the record came out in 1998, I was already doing advertisements for the 707. And there was other companies coming out with seven-string pickups as well, but no active pickups. So other guitar companies, including Ibanez and other guitar companies that were developed, that were manufacturing seven-strings, they were ordering pickups from EMG to put in their guitars. Even the manufacturing, uh, these guitars, they were ordering those EMG pickups because it slowly but surely started to become known. And then I was like, you know, the 707 sounds darker. I go, we need to go for an 81. You guys got to put the electronics in 81. So they came out with the 817. And boom, that became my signature pickup from EMG, the 817. It was the DC 817. And by obsolete, by the touring cycle of obsolete, I had those pickups. And we were selling them and I was, you know, playing them. Other manufacturing companies were ordering it for their guitars. And then uh, by 1999, I was at the NAMM convention and there was fucking every guitar company had a seven string guitar. I was seeing seven string ukuleles. I was seeing seven string fucking banjos. I was seeing everything. It became... You know, as corn got bigger, the seven string started to get more popular and people just jumped on that trend big time. Also, a big development that happened was in 1998, my Marshall head got stolen. I was on tour during the obsolete cycle and my Marshall head got stolen. My baby got stolen on that tour. So by 1999, NAMFest, late January, I was like, I need to find another head. But before the NAM convention started, I went to Guitar Center and I told the Guitar Center, I told the guy working there, fucking set up all these amps. I'm going to fucking find a new amp and I'm going to fucking, I'm going to have to go a different route. Because after my guitar head got stolen, I 
went and bought another JCMA Hunter Marshall head, bought, bought a few of them. And I went to go find the guy who developed the, the mod inside the head. But unfortunately, he moved and left out of the country. And I was, fuck, he went to Israel. But I didn't know that at first, but he went to Israel. I'm like, fuck. I was like, damn. So I bought all these marshals, but you know, they just, uh, for me, they weren't cutting it. So I went to guitar center, tried all these different heads, you name it, everybody. I tried everything, but then there was this one little weird, unique head sitting on the corner. And I said, plug that thing in. Let's see what that is. Never heard of this company called line six. Never heard of it. Plugged in that head. And the guy's like, Oh, you're not going to like it. That's, that's a, that's a samples guitar tone. You're not going to like it. It's, it's whack. You know, you're not going to like it. So I'm like, oh, I don't care. Just plug it in, see what it does. Plugged it in. And it was pretty easy to figure out, put in the thing that it was called the, there was two tones in there called the modern high gain, which is like a JCM 800 modified supposedly. And then they had the Mesa boogie tone, right? But it didn't sound like a Mesa boogie. It was called the rectified. That's what's called rectified tone. It didn't sound like a dual rectifier or a triple rectifier because it didn't have that muddy low end that they normally have because those rectifiers, you got to throw on one of those tube screamers and one of those type of pedals. You got to control those things. Yeah, you got to control those low ends. This was not EA, so this must have been a flex tone head. Yes, it was the first flex tone head, which I still have. I still have it. It's in my closet actually right now, but I still have it. Yeah. So we plugged it in. I was like, I went to the modern high gain. I'm like, hmm, okay, this has got some good gain. And then uh, I started to fuck around with the tones. I'm like, fuck. I was like, this fucking reacts way better than a, than a tube amp. The reaction is much quicker. And I realized that it was, you know, it was a samples tone. It had a 300 watt power amp inside it. You know, it had some power behind it. And I was like, fuck, I like this. I'm fucking really liking this. So so I had my guitar tech with me and he was like, Hey man, the NAM, NAMS convention is coming up. We should talk to him then. I'm like, hmm, good idea. So I said, later guitar center. I'm not buying it. Talk to you later. <laughs> so then uh, January came along NAM convention. And I went fucking straight to the line six booth. Talked to a guy named Tim Godwin who works for Taylor guitars. Still a good friend of mine. Went straight to the booth, fucking talked to him, told him my dilemma, told him I love that fucking head. And boom, he just fucking gave me them. I was endorsed by line six, right? And they go, they said they also have this little bean pod. You might've seen it. Yeah, of course. The original pod. Yeah, that was cool. I used it for some other recordings and stuff like that. But the head I was using live, I was plugging them into cabinets. I was plugging them into Mesa Boogie rectified cabs with a rectified sample tone. And it was like, you know, back then it was only like 16 bit sample rate right so you know plugging it into the cabinet you know with a 300 watt power amp that was inside it sounded killer i use it on digimortal right in 2000 were you surprised that it worked i was very surprised yeah that the reaction with my palm and my pick it was a quick reaction because it's somewhat of a solid state but it had a power amp inside you know why do you think people were so hesitant to adopt that because i remember when Line 6 started to get popular in the late 90s. People were so opposed to it. I don't believe Line 6 was popular in the late 90s at all whatsoever. At least among me and my guitar friends, it was. Really? In the late 90s? Okay. I even had a friend with one of the original AX 2x12s, which I don't know if you've seen those. It was the first model they made, and they actually sound still, to my ears now, sound absolutely amazing. Yeah. 
when you go to the Line 6 Research and Development Department, the warehouse or, or just where they work, you know, you have to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement, but you could go there and you could see how they developed this fucking, this technology and how they did it. And I'm like, fuck, this is amazing. I was like, fucking blown away. I really got into those things. So it was a flex tone hit. It was a flex tone one. I guess, you know, people had them, I guess, from what you're saying, other people had them. Great. But for, for me being touring around the world, I didn't see anybody had them. Nobody had them. At all. People were asking, what the fuck are you playing? What the fuck is that? Pros were very hesitant with those. Like, I only saw it in, like, local circles and stuff. Yeah, people fear change back then. I'm sure amp companies were, over the years, as, as it, the, the, the technology got better, amp companies were pissed off because, you know, later, later on, you know, 10, 15 years later, everybody was just basically developing their own shit online, developing their own algorithms to do all that, you know, in guitar software programs. And it got better and better and better and better. And so amp companies were getting pissed off because they were losing sales over this technology. So in 99, when I was doing that, shortly after that, I got into the first pod XT rack mount. And I put that, I put that with a Mesa boogie to a 100 power amp. So it's hundred Watts per side. During the obsolete tour, I was playing that through two by 12 Mesa boogie cabinets because they would fit perfectly. On my side of the stage, I had the keyboard player and he had a riser. So those two by 12s would fit perfectly under the riser. Then I had Mesa boogie. They came out with these a long time ago. Um, they were called the monitor wedges, but they were guitar. There were two by 12s, but they were slanted. Like a monitor, it looked exactly like a monitor, but it was, but it was the same construction of a two by twelve speaker. So I was like, "Oh fuck, yeah, I'll take those, right? I'll take those." And I put them on the side of me. I put one on the front of me. I put one all the way on the other side of the stage. And so wherever I went, I had that tone. It's fucking amazing. Then after that, still during that touring cycle of nineteen ninety nine. I got rid of the, the cabinets. I started going direct to the house and it was fucking amazing. The sound guy loved it because he had way more control of the tone. There was no guitar bleeding into the cymbals or any of the microphones that were on stage. The tone was just coming out of the, the regular, you know, PA monitors that were on the floor. You know what I mean? And so another thing that when I was going direct to house and it was going direct to the monitor console, I had to tell the monitor guy remove the fucking eq fuck that most of the guys how they mix on stage they mix for a microphone right for you for vocalists those monitors are like you know mainly vocals and so i say get rid of that fucking eq get rid of all that shit keep it flat as fuck right because even though he can remove the, the eq on the board there's still another eq that's going through the whole thing so i'm like Remove me from those channels too and just fucking keep it direct. The tone is already there. Keep it flat as fuck. Boom. And it sounded great. It sounded amazing. How long before you noticed other touring guitar players starting to go direct? Because that also took a while to catch on in metal. Very much a while to catch on. Maybe, I don't know, anywhere between, I would say, seven to 10 years later. And it still wasn't even that much. I would say... Probably, you know, not until like guys like Tosin and Periphery and, and Mashuga people were doing stuff like that later on. 
Yeah. I mean, the the first time I saw Meshuggah doing it was probably 2004, 2005. Um, after their album, well, it would have been in the, it would have been a few years before, but when Nothing came out was kind of when they turned to direct. So obviously the album before was Dual Rectifier. So yeah, I mean, it was quite a bit later than the late 90s. Well, I know that they were doing direct on the record. I don't know if they were doing a direct at the front of the house live. I don't know if they were doing that. Were they? In 2004, when I saw them, they were. I believe they were using the Veta, right? I think it was actually before that. I think they were using the XT. Or it wasn't the XT, sorry. It was the Pod Pro 2.0 that I saw them with, which was the predecessor of the XT Pro, which was the original Bean and then the Rack Mount. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's still five years later than the Flexstone. So yeah, I was doing all that stuff. And then um, it just it pretty much just caught on with other bands like Meshuggah and stuff like that. And it just grew and grew and grew. You know, there wasn't there wasn't definitely a lot of people doing that at the time. Maybe there was. Maybe there was some other rock bands or other commercial bands that might have been using it. Obviously, that was not my genre. So I didn't see those bands, you know, on the festivals or... These innovations, like with the way that you're explaining this, they were all based on you chasing a very specific goal. Like uh, you heard something in your head and given the tools around you, it was just kind of impossible without, without developing those new pickups or without uh, going direct, whatever it is. Um, All these innovations kind of came out of some sort of necessity. It sounds like. So check this out. So after we developed that pickup way back in 96, um, um, fast forward to 2007, here's a company called Seymour Duncan. They want to get into the active market and they wanted to develop a thing called the blackout. So who do they reach out? They reach out to me just because of words of mouth. They're like, you know, you got to talk to Tino if you want to develop these pickups because he's the one to help the EMG. It's not like Seymour Duncan call EMG and say, Hey, what did you guys do? Can I make a pickup like that? No, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> so they said, Hey, let's call Dino. Two interesting stories here. So they called me to help them develop the blackout pickup. So I helped them with that. I ended up leaving EMG to go to Seymour Duncan. And I signed a contract. I'm still with Seymour Duncan now. Signed a contract with them because it, we, you know, we were going to put out the, the Dino Gazar's blackout pickup called a retribution, which they did. But yeah, I helped them develop with that, helped them get them started with that. Then there was a guy, a good friend of mine, a guy named Frank Felbo, who came in with another technology. I try to remember what year it was. It could have been around the same time. He had the technology that became the Fishman Influence pickup. So he had this technology at the time, and he approached me, and he was actually working at Seymour Duncan at the time. So he's like, hmm, Dino's into this you know, active pickup. I'm coming out with this thing called the Fishman Fluid. Well, he's coming out with the with that first sample tone pickup, I guess you would call it, right? So I was like, fuck, I need to jump on this technology. But it was, I was like, I already signed the deal with Seymour Duncan. So I couldn't just leave Seymour Duncan. But he was telling me, look, I'm giving this technology to Seymour Duncan first. But Seymour Duncan were fear of the change. They were feared. They they feared that maybe you know it might fuck up their classic pickups that they sell like bazillions of. So they turned down the technology. They turned down. They turned down Frank Falbo, which thank Frank Falbo took the technology somewhere else, and which a company called Fishman, which became the Fishman Fluence pickup, which is doing great. 
which is doing great. A lot of guys jumped on it. Devin Townsend, you know, Tosa Nabassi, you know, Ken Susie. Ken Susie was responsible for getting a lot of those artists on, you know, onto the company. But I was locked in with Seymour Duncan. I was very happy with my pickups that were coming out. We were direct competition, pretty much. <laughs> I love the guys at Fluence. I love everybody that works there. I'm friends with everybody there. Still good friends with Frank Falbo. I'm locked in with Seymour Duncan. That's my family there right now. That's where I'm at. It's quite an interesting story about Frank giving the technology to Seymour Duncan first and then declining it. It reminds me of what happened with Dyson. <laughs> I don't know if you're, you know, Dyson Cleaners, he gave his technology to every single one of them and they all turned it down saying it was stupid. And now it's the biggest thing in the world in that department. Correct. You know, and that's just how, that's just how things get developed. You have that one person pushing that idea and then you try to find somebody else who's going to see the advantages of it. And luckily he was able to find a home at uh, Fishman. Fishman pickups, but Seymour Duncan still makes some fucking sick pickups. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still there. Yeah. I have my second pickup coming out. It's called the Machete. (laughs) I like that name. (laughs) Right now it's only exclusive in my Ormsby guitars, my signature Ormsby guitars, but eventually once it's not exclusive in the guitars, it will be available on Seymour Duncan. We have some questions from listeners for you. Is it cool if uh, we ask a few? Sure. All right. So first one is from Enan Murphy and he says, fuck yeah, huge fan since the obsolete days. My favorite Fear Factory songs are always, are nearly always the epic ballads they always have as album closers, you know, Resurrection, Final Exit. Is there any thought process behind always ending with this style of song? Definitely, definitely a big thought process. When I, when I sequence albums or when I create albums, I look at them as one big long song, you know, it's peaks and valleys, plateaus, and you know, uh, how the song, how the album starts, how the album ends. Usually our records are pretty intense all the way through. And the songs that really stand out are the melodic ones that are placed strategically through the record, you know, obsolete. You have a call, a song called descent, which is very melodic, very, you know, uh, no double bass, you know, a cool track that's in the middle. And a lot of people say, I love that song because it's, it stands out amongst all the intensity. To me, music is tension and release. You, you create that tension that builds up, then you release it with this beautiful, melodic, angelic part or song. So usually at the end of the record, out of, you know, our records are always about, you know, human and AI's relationships, sometimes they don't always get along. So there's that intensity within the concepts of the whole record. And then at the end of the record, you hear this beautiful, angelic, melodic song that kind of like gives you like the light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope for humanity. There's just this very calming feeling, this beautiful, melodic, dark type of gothy voice, you know, and, and people just relate to it really well, because like I said, it's all about tension and release. And that release is that last song. And so, and that's why people fall in love with it. And, um, I discovered that doing that, um, in a demanufactured record, because the last song we put 
a therapy for pain. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's therapeutic. All the pain that you go through, or all the pain that you hear on the record through the course of the album, then you got that one therapeutic song, A Therapy for Pain, and it just calms and it soothes the listener and they just fall in love with it because you hear a different passion than all the intensity that comes before it. Makes sense. Yeah. Great answer. Hey, Dino, uh, this is from Kevin Testagrosa. Um, what were some of the main reasons why you wanted to work with Orms- Ormsby Guitars on your recent signature model? Okay, first of all, this is kind of a really fucked up explanation or things that happened. When we were going through the lawsuits with the ex-members, they sued every company around us. Just like carpet bombing? Carpet bombing, totally. It's a legal technique is what they do is they try to scare everybody and they try to fucking ruin your ruin you, right? So they sued Seymour Duncan. They sued fucking Ibanez, blah, 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 blah. Those companies were exonerated a month later or so because there was no basis for them to sue them. But unfortunately for Ibanez, it kind of scared the company. They're like, fuck, Dino's got this fucking baggage, you know, with these ex-members suing us. We don't know if we really want to put his signature guitar out anymore. I was still signed to Ibanez, just they discontinued my signature model because of the lawsuit. I get it. It's business. That's how things go. So... At NAM, okay, going back to NAM, you know, that's that's the beauty of NAM is that you're able to discover other companies, you know, related to guitar, just music in general. You know, everybody comes out with new shit all the time. And I love it. The best part about NAM is going downstairs where all those little smaller companies, you know, they're like minnows trying to survive in this fucking shark tank type world with all these bigger companies. But some of those companies down below the smaller ones fucking come out with some of the best shit so one of those companies was Ormsby guitars and they were developing this these multi-scale guitars that were just fucking amazing how they developed their guitars there was an idea behind it and i was like i needed to discover what that idea was i was still signed to ibanez but i was talking to the guys at Ormsby guitars and i was like what is it that makes this so unique right? Why a multi-scale? So they were explaining to me that the multi-scale, that the, that usually the, the, the bass strings have a longer scale on the top, and then the high strings have a lower scale, sorry, shorter scale on the, on the high strings. And the reason why is because they see where music is going. They see how people are tuning their guitars, and they see that, you know, the longer scale on the lower strings added better tension on the lower tuning guitars, you know, you can use lighter strings, you know, or you can use, you can use whatever size strings you want, but if you were to use lighter strings, that tension is still there because of the longer scale on the lower string. Right. So I was like, ah, fucking, I love that. So I was like, when I left Ibanez, I went straight to Ormsby guitars. We sent a signature deal and I decided to make my multi-scale guitar not so extreme because they usually did like a two inch difference. If it was 28 and a half on the lower string and it was 25 or 26 and a half on the higher string. So that's two inches difference, right? So mine is a one inch difference. So it's 27 and a half on the lower strings and 26 and a half on the higher strings. I kind of like, I asked them how far or how, or how less of an angle could we go to where, you know, I could still have that tension. And he says, 
it could be a one inch difference. And I'm like, okay, cool. So let's make it that way. And so that's exactly, it's exactly what we did. That's a pretty guitar. <laughs> you guys didn't think I was going to bust us out, did you? No, I did not. So yeah. So you kind of look at that and if you look at it quickly, you kind of don't really tell unless you see it here that it's at an angle because it's only a one inch difference here on the top from the, from the bottom. I also wanted to put the trust rod adjustments here so you don't always have to take off that fucking plate and try to get in there and try to adjust the neck. You know what I mean? So the truss rod adjustment is down here, which I love. That's like old, old fender stuff. Back in the day, old fenders did that, right? So I like that. Of course, the one pickup and it's the machete. Now, one of the beauties about this guitar is that you can put whatever pickup you want. You don't need to go buy an angled pickup because it's only a one inch difference. So you can just tilt the route and you can put in what, like if you wanted to go put some uh, other, whatever, another Seymour Duncan or a DeMarjo passive look, passive pickup, you could put it there and then we wouldn't have to buy some, you know, angled pickup. You know what I mean? So, and also the beauty about this guitar or this pickup is that it's an, actually an active pickup. So basically what they did is, they took the preamp out of my uh, retribution uh, signature pickup and they put it in this, this pickup and it's on the bottom. I wish I had the pickup to show you the back of it, but I don't. So it still plugs in like an EMG, right? The EMG 81, it's active. It's considered open coil, but there's still a lot of noise canceling stuff on the pickup, right? But it does have a slightly different tone and which I found out it's kind of more of a direct tone. Sure, you have the regular EMGs type of pickup, salt bars. They have bars underneath. You can't tell because the case is covering it, but they have bars that go across as the pull pieces. These are the pull pieces. And I noticed that the pull pieces, you kind of get a little bit more attack and a little bit more brightness to it, a little bit more clarity in these pickups. And I just, I just love the way they came out. It's in my signature series guitars. Now, another thing that I developed over the years was, you know, like back in 1998 during obsolete tour, our lighting rig got more intense. We had a lot more strobe lights and just blinking shit and the stage would black out and boom, turn back on just to intensify the song. So we had a way killer lighting rig back, back then. And I noticed that sometimes when the stage or just even coming on the stage, it was pitch black. I couldn't see the fucking guitar. <laughs> I couldn't see. Like there was a couple of times where I started and I was like, fuck, I'm I'm a you know semi-tone off. Like holy shit. Actually, I started getting glow-in-the-dark nail polish. I started to put it on the top frets of my uh the fret markers on the top. And so I was like, well, you know what? Why can't Ibanez do something for me? And so I did. So I had Ibanez paint these. I don't know if you could see them where there's these bars that go, see these white bars? Yep. That's because of live. That's just live. You could look down and you could see that. And it was killer. I've been doing all my Ibanez's for years. Now it's on my signature guitar. And do they glow in the dark? No, but they're bright enough to where you can just look down and you see it. All right. Question here from Justin Kellerman. He says, hey, Dino, love your playing and writing. I'm especially fond of the later Fear Factory albums. Do you ever find yourself getting fatigued from playing through certain songs you've written in your career? I find myself using some of the tracks on Genesis to get my right hand into shape. For example, Battle for Utopia and Protomech. 
Yeah, Battle for Utopia is definitely a right hand fucking destroyer, man. Because that's that one. It definitely you have to have a certain technique and endurance. Mainly is endurance. I remember when the guys in the Sugar were telling me when they came out with the song "Bleed," because that song was like six and a half minutes long, right? And they actually had to shorten the song live because they just couldn't play it all the way through. But eventually they did, right? So that kind of like same type of thing is with Fear Factory. It's just you have to have that endurance, that right-hand endurance. A lot of guitar players like, oh, yeah, Dino writes that riff. That's that's like nothing. That riff is so easy. Oh, my God, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's fucking just whatever. He's doing the same thing over and over. It's so repetitive. I'm like, okay, go for it. Try and play it live. Tell me if you can play it all the way through. Most of them can't. It's all about endurance and technique. I just developed it over the, over the style. I mean, over the years. And obviously, you know, before we hit a tour, we practice. And there's one song in particular on this new record called Fuel Injected Suicide Machine. That song is not easy to play when it comes to the picking in the right hand, you know, because you got to be machine-like and you got to hit that riff over and over. During the verse, it's repetitive. You know, you're doing like 16 bars of it. You got to fucking, you know, you got to keep it up. And that's just how it is. Not just me, but the drummer as well with his feet. Rehearse, maybe do some of those old techniques I was talking about. Put those wrist weights on there, you know? Put some electrical tape around the joints of your fingers, you know what I mean? That's it. You know, we just rehearse. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah. So a uh, question here from Sean O'Shugnessy. What are some non-musical things that inspire or influence your writing? There's a lot of things. A song like Martyr is an actual techno riff. So I, back in the day, playing the backyard scenes... I learned to really enjoy electronic and techno music. And I got a lot of inspiration from that. Build-ups, breakdowns were different than what I heard in metal music. So how the guy writing this music or even DJs of how they get the the crowd pumped into this music, they have a lot of snare build-ups, you know, just build up, build up, build up, boom, it explodes in this killer fucking beat or this killer synth line. So synth lines, you know, in techno music really inspired me to write the riffs in Fear Factory. Now, there's, a, there's another thing, too, that I didn't explain to you yet. Back in the day, you know, I would hear industrial techno bands or even hip hop bands that were sampling guitar riffs. They were sampling guitar riffs on a sample. Now, we really couldn't afford samplers back in the day. We kind of had to do that sound with conventional instruments, bass, drums, guitars, right? So my approach, even going back to 1988, to that a thing again, we talked about Metallica, one song, right? Even that riff and even those other bands sampling guitar riffs, you always hear the loop. You can hear the loop. You can hear where, where it stops. You know, for instance... Public Enemy sampled Angel of Death, the midsection. Public Enemy sam- sampled it for a song called Channel Zero, right? And this is, we're talking the 80s, right? We're talking 80s still. So you can hear the loop in the sample. So you hear the, the midsection, but you hear the stop. So I'm like, hey, fuck, I, you know, I don't have a sampler. So I need to copy that loop. I need to copy how that stop is. So perfect example. 
You sang that stop really well, by the way. I've been I've been singing it forever. <laughs> For instance, a perfect example, a song called South by Resistor, which is the second track on D Manufacture. That song has that sound because it's me trying to copy the sampler, the stop in the loop. So in particular, the riff goes. So me and Raymond were like, fuck, that sounds like a sampled riff. So let's, you know, that's our sound. That's, that's part of it. So Raymond had to learn that with a kick truth. And the triggers were also able to develop that stop because the sound stopped quicker and it didn't resonate like what a kick drum would. So that developed our style of us trying to copy a sampler sampling a riff or a beat and of course samplers became better and better and better and it sounded more human-like blah 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 but we still like that old 80s sampler where you hear that fucking stop you hear the loop so that kind of developed my style too it's those are just unique places that i drew inspiration from that probably i don't really know anybody else who has maybe they have later on i don't know maybe that's where you know, people felt where a degent style came from. I don't know. People have said that about me that I was like one of the early forefathers of this degent style. And you got to remember the record D manufacturer hit worldwide, even though Meshuggah came out with Destroy Race Approved just a month before D manufacturer. Not a lot of people knew about Meshuggah back then, but a lot of people knew Fear Factory. So people, even though Meshuggah was probably, you know, developed, took it to a different level. We wanted to be more, you know, we didn't want those, you know, weird syncopated type time signatures. We wanted the groove. We wanted that element to where fucking somebody at a festival fucking a mile away at 100,000 people could fucking hear it and get into it. That's what we were into because, you know, during Soul and Machine, we learned a lot of stuff live on how a crowd reacts to a certain song, certain riff, a certain beat. So we wanted to add that simple stuff to where people can fucking nod their head to. Not have to, not have to think like, oh shit, okay, do I start again? Do I stop again? So we're fucking <laughs> you know what I mean? So we wanted to do, develop that. You know, we just wanted to get into that shit because we knew that fucking people were going to get into it live. It's just different inspirations that we drew from, of course, movies, books, even if I'm walking down the street and I hear a construction site and you hear that one fucking cement machine going over. And yeah. Just rhythmic things that I hear. I'm still cursed with it today. Rhythmic things that I hear coming from something mechanical has inspired me. I draw inspiration from many weird places and very typical places, you know, from old music that I like that you know old thrash metal stuff you know fucking exodus first record some rain and blood slayer just many records like that still still inspire me today all right last question from enan murphy is uh i read in an interview years ago that said you used to tape up unused strings when tracking so you could beat the shit out of the strings is this something that you still do to get those triplets sounding so brutal and tight <laughs> So it's actually board tape, which, you know, it's basically the mixing console. They put board tape on there and then they write like what each channel is, you know, which a lot of people don't even know what that is anymore. Right. <laughs> people are just mixing off their computers nowadays, but you can still kind of see the board on your computer in different channels. Back in the day, they had board tape. I would use the board tape 
to tape up strings that I'm not using. So if I'm using the if I'm using the the four strings, the top, the low four strings to you know write a riff or record a riff, I would tape up the high three strings to keep it from making any kind of a noise. And I would do the same thing at the top of the guitar, at the top of the headstock, right? But nowadays I don't use that. I use foam. So I just use foam. I don't know if you can see the foam there. Yeah, just behind the knot. Yeah, very, a very thin strip. It keeps the strings from rattling up here. But also when I'm recording, I'll put foam underneath here. So I don't use the tape anymore because over time, the tape would leave residue on your fucking on your guitar. And I'm like, fuck, then you have to get like some goo gone to get that residence off. And then sometimes the goo gone will take the shine away from the finish on the guitar. So just stupid shit like that, that I would start using foam because it was much easier to pull it in, pull it out. But still the idea of muting things that just vibrate and cause noise. Correct. Yeah. So everything. (laughs) Sometimes it bothered me when I'm hearing like other bands and I'm hearing songs and then you can hear the ling, the little ringing of the fucking strings and i'm like oh man i wish they just i wish somebody would just tell them you know what i mean <laughs> well you can't eq that shit out no or noise gate or anything and i can imagine like when you first got that seven string do you know in the 90s because obviously at the time they all had the low pro edges on them did you just like tape the shit out of everything in the back as well well first of all i blocked the tremolo right i blocked the tremolo and what i did is I cut the foam strips, right? And I put them inside the springs. So I shoved the foam inside the springs. It looks funny, right? But I shoved them inside <laughs> the springs, inside the, inside the springs, right? To keep the spring, springs from rattling. And then I put foam underneath the springs. So when the springs, they sit on top of the foam. And then I put foam on top of the springs. So when you, when you put the, the back plate on, it's got foam on it all over. Right. And so that keep, keep them, the springs from going wing, wing, you know, you got to put that in there. But now if I do have a guitar with a tremolo or the last 10 years or so, I learned that or maybe longer, might've been longer, 15 years. Plus, I learned that, you know, talking to Joe Satrani that he puts clear liquid silicone around his pickups. Cause he says that the pickups rattle and sometimes they can, can cause feedback. So he puts this, liquid you, you don't see it but it's inside the inside the cavity of the uh pickup route that he puts this liquid clear silicone liquid to keep the pickup from moving right and i was like hey well if you can use it for that i can use it for the springs so i was squirting this liquid this clear liquid rubber inside the springs right and so that really fucking helped a lot totally but I still put foam on top and on the bottom. It's kind of important, man. I always do that in the studio. You just, you just can't get rid of certain noises. Guitars just rattle. There's just shit in there that rattles, basically. Yeah, totally. So I know we're almost wrapped up here. Can we talk for just a second about the new album? Oh, I, I thought we were. Comes out just in two weeks. <laughs> well, we didn't talk about what amps you're using now for recording. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. Okay. Let's talk about it. Well, have you gone into the computer <laughs> with amp sims? Like, have you gone in that direction? Oh, well, yeah. Like, yeah, like Neural DSP definitely has some yeah. amp sims. I'm still a believer in the, the traditional fucking JC 100 Marshall head that I have that was modified by Mike Thornton. So 
I've been using those. But what I did was was I recorded. Well, first of all, I made a tone. I, I captured the tone from those Marshalls into my Kemper. I created, you know, I did a tone for it. And that's kind of cool because you can really get in there and tone shape your amp even better. So what I did was I recorded with the tone from the Kemper. And then when it came to reamping just before mixing, I reamped with the actual head. Just because of the DIs were nice and pure and I was able to fucking get a really good tone out of the head. I have this Protone pedal. It's an overdrive pedal and it's got a lot of good little features on it. And one of them is you can actually tone shape with the bass, not just the the the, the frequency mid-scoop that you can do, but I also added a, a, a bass tone, a bass frequency thing. So you can scoop out some of that low end or add some of the low end, depending on what you want to do. So I actually used that in front of the head as well. And I was able to tone shape the mids that I wanted to get in there. And I actually backed off just a hair of the low... We're talking everything. Usually when you get a pedal, the best thing to do is start at 12 o'clock, you know, right up the middle. And then you just go each way you want to go. So the bass for me was at 12 o'clock on the pedal. I just backed it off just a hair. Boom. I got that tight, sweet spot. And um, that's pretty much what I use on the record. Awesome, man. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us, man. It's been a pleasure catching up. I can't believe that it's already been 11 years since that tour. Fucking nuts. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. I hope that other people can hear this and, you know, learn a little bit of, about what I do and maybe they can apply it to their style or technique or however they develop themselves on, on taking this and maybe taking it further. Hey, if Dino can do this, maybe I can fucking make it even better. And I hope I inspire people in that way to do that. I'm also, I also feel very lucky that early in my career, I was able to develop a unique sound and a unique style and a distinctive one that people can hear and know that it's instantly me or it's Fear Factory, you know? Um, and I want to thank everybody for supporting the band for the last 30 years. I want to give a big shout out to everybody who contributed to the GoFundMe campaign to, to be able to finish this record and get it out to you. Um, and if you want to buy anything from Fear Factory, go to fearfactory.com. We got cassettes, we got vinyl, we got CDs, we got merchandise, we got tour dates coming up that are on there. So thank you again. I appreciate Ayel for this platform to be able to talk, talk to you guys and, Talk to anybody out there who's listening. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. And remember to always fucking riff hard. <laughs> <laughs> always. What a legend. Yeah. There's no denying his impact on metal. It's pretty big. Yeah. Pretty big and interesting. You were saying this. You were saying that um, both Destroy, Erase, Improve and Demanufacture came out at around the same exact time within a month of each other at different points on the planet. And I consider those two albums the beginning of what has happened right now in terms of progressive metal. And not just progressive metal, industrial metal, all the different branches that people are using syncopated rhythms. Anything with breakdowns. Yeah. Anything that tunes down and does heavy fucking shit. 
Yep. Pretty much everything. And it was both of them, I can imagine, were inspired by the exact same moment in that song by Metallica. Well, you know, older Meshuggah sounds a lot more like Metallica. Yeah. I mean, Contradictions Collapse is literally Metallica in offbeats. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure people understand what a shift Meshuggah went through stylistically before they became the Meshuggah that we know and love. They were kind of like a thrash band almost. Yeah. If you listen to that first proper album, which is obviously Contradictions Collapse, it literally is. I mean, Frederick Thorndale was using a six string flying V. Yeah. There you have it. Then you go to Non, which obviously came out two or three years later. And that's when the seven string stuff started coming in. And you started hearing elements of um, Destroyer Rays Improve and Chaosphere. And then obviously moved to eight strings. And then we're into the modern side of Meshuggah. And you can kind of hear the shift after the first album as well, where they were definitely more influenced by Alan Holdsworth. So it's like a mixture of that thrash Metallica one following the kick drum along with Alan Holdsworth. And it's quite interesting, their transition from Destroyer Rays Improve even. Yeah, totally. I wonder if back then, if... Dino and the Meshuggah guys knew, understood what an impact they were about to make. No way. Nobody's psychic, so. No one's psychic, but obviously Dino knew exactly what he wanted to do after he heard that bit. And it's amazing that just one small fraction of a song can inspire an an entire couple of decades of music. Because if you think about it, like when that, when D-Manufacture came out, what, 1995, this style of music didn't really start getting more players into it until 2010. There was a couple, obviously, before then, but 2010, Periphery 1 coming out, I think, was the beginning of the boom of it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And man, I remember listening to that Metallica part and thinking that that was, like, the coolest part ever. (laughs) Of course, no one had ever done it before. In fact, actually, you know what? I do have one moment that I consider to sort of be the beginning of the syncopated parts that I heard and it's not metal obviously it's happened beforehand but the kick drum following what was happening in the rhythm section Phil Collins Easy Lover with Philip Bailey I am not familiar with that one. Oh, come on <laughs> surely come on Al, please um, it's the the bit in the middle that's dun 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 drawing a blank dude Oh man, you're gonna have to have a listen to it after this. But that was like what mid '80s, I want to say. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Philip Bailey, obviously from um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Phil Collins, Genesis solo. That riff, I actually did a cover of it, and it works perfectly for metal. But yeah, it's kind of like I would consider that sort of late '80s when the syncopation started happening. Obviously, then Metallica, then onto Fear Factory, Meshuggah, and then obviously to where we are now. But yeah, it was such a cool moment. When that, when I first heard that Metallica one riff, because no one had ever done it before. Seems like such an obvious thing to do to follow the kicks. I think that it was not really considered drumming probably at that period of time. What do you mean? It was different. You know, like if you think about what a drum beat is, and I guess the, the standard of what drummers were doing around that time period, that would have been considered crazy. Definitely. And now it's just commonplace, but... I mean, it just makes so much sense. Everyone following. But again, it's just not something that I can believe any metal drummer practiced at that point in time. No, they definitely didn't. Now, how did you get better at those types of rhythms, like Meshuggah or Fear Factory style rhythms, the syncopated stuff? Recording on a computer. 
100%. I remember when I first heard nothing. So I bought nothing. I think it was 2002. Might have been 2003. I can't remember when it came out. But the first couple of times that I spun that record, I had absolutely no fucking idea what was going on. Before that, I was listening to a lot of power metal, Ingve Malmsteen, and then heard the Meshuggah stuff. And it just didn't make any sense. So it was a case of repetition of listening to it and then trying to do covers of some of it, which I failed miserably at. And then all of a sudden started writing in that style. And obviously it took a number of years to get really comfortable at it because it wasn't something that you could just open a book and someone would teach you it. I mean, I'm sure you remember back then as well, Al, when Meshuggah lost their bass player and they were looking for one for years. Um, and I remember when they announced it, they were saying that it was such a, a breath of fresh air for them to find a person that could do it because it just wasn't normal. And that was what, 2004, I want to say? Yeah, it's it's not normal. Um, so, well, I mean, it's much more common now, but it's still not not that many people are that good at it. No. Still. And imagine it being in Dino's shoes in the early 90s and finding a drummer that could do that. It must have been like finding a needle in a haystack. I can't even understand how he found someone. It just takes looking and looking and looking and looking. The thing that's better about nowadays is that you have the internet, right? So I think back then, in lots of ways, you're bound by your network and bound by your geographical area to a degree. I realized Meshuggah was a big band, so they had a wider you know, they could cast a wider net, but it's still tough. But now it's way easier. You know, you find a bass player in the Ukraine who can do it or something. Like, it's so much easier to find people just because of how spread out everything is. But that said, how can someone use the Riff Hard site to get better at this kind of stuff? So if we go into the downpicking gym, not only are we focusing on building endurance for the right hand, uh, strength, stamina, all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of exercises on there that start getting you familiar with different beat placements. Because if you actually listen to a lot of this style of music, it's not that it's in these crazy time signatures. It's a lot of accent points. And if you haven't felt those accent points and those weirdisms, then it feels weird, especially if you're over a 4-4 beat like Fear Factory, Meshuggah. So I'm sure you remember us filming this AL back in Florida a couple of years ago when uh, we would accent certain beat of the bar while playing in 7-8 over 4-4. And yes. obviously it's constantly moving. So it's a case of not only, firstly, obviously you have to count it, but after a while of repetition, you start to feel where these beats are and you start getting familiar with it. It's a really good exercise for really understanding how to feel different beats of the bar which I think is the most important thing when it comes to learning this style of music, how to accent on offbeat two just before the snare or in halftime, or maybe you want to accent the the seventh of the eighth notes during a bar. Um, and it really gets you prepared for being able to understand it. And most importantly, understand how it feels. That is the most important part. I feel like if you understand how it feels and like can can visualize it as a piece of music, your hands will follow much easier than trying to make your hands do this weird thing that you don't understand, but that like you're trying to kind of weirdly count your way through or like, and you're getting discombobulated. If you can actually find a way to understand it musically, like where you hear it and you can kind of sing it ish, 
ish. I say ish because this shit's weird to sing, but to where you can really understand it as a piece of music, it'll make it way easier to play. Way easier to play. In fact, there's actually a really good example of where I didn't even really think about how weird the rhythm was in this particular section because I just used to sing the riff all the time and it's the beginning of Carnival's Goliath. But when you actually break it down, it's in some of the weirdest time signatures. But if you can sing the riff, then you don't really think about it and there's no need to count it because you're feeling it. So that's, in my opinion, the best way to learn just by feeling what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, riffhard.com, feel it. That said, it's been a pleasure, Brown. <laughs> Riffhard.com, feel it. And then a picture yeah. of my face smiling. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>